everybody it's justin romer here your host with cbg radio formerly known as the starving podcast we don't need no goddamn sponsors we're just here to talk about science nutrition fitness and anything uh you know any related info to that that we think might empower the lives of of you guys out there we have a special guest today her name is erica she is a national accomplished equestrian riding she rides horses she's an avid tennis player uh, former amateur MMA and bodybuilder, and she did help several bodybuilders with uh, building out a lot of their nutrition plans. She's been in the nutrition industry for about seven years. And, uh, you know, why we're on the podcast today is to talk all about eating disorders. Erica has struggled with 26 years of different types of eating disorders, but is currently in active recovery and has been for eight years. And we want to get more insight into, you know, her experiences and how those experiences shaped who she is today and what it means to be able to help with other people that are struggling with the same type of eating disorders. So guys, what's up? Hello, hello. Hi. So we got our co-host Justina on today to ask all the good questions. Erica, so I'd like to start this podcast off by just giving a little bit of background about what is an eating disorder and what are the different types of eating disorders that exist out there? Well, first of all, I'd really like to thank you guys for having me on here. I'm very passionate about this topic. It's it's something that so many people suffer from, and we think we know a lot about these things, but eating disorders are incredibly complex. And I'm only speaking from my perspective. Each person's experience with it is very different, but we have a lot of commonalities shared amongst us. And an eating disorder is really any type of behavior around food that causes disturbed eating habits or abnormal eating habits or excessive compulsive obsessive thoughts about food. And it's really something that causes stress around food, eating or lifestyle habits. That's how at least I describe it. Right, right. And in terms of the different types, I mean, I know that some are sort of, some people have all the different types of eating disorders sort of in one. Some people just suffer from one or another. What are the different types of eating disorders that people are experiencing on sort of a, just a daily basis? So there's three major types that most of us are familiar with. There's anorexia, which is not eating at all. Bulimia, which is purging your food that you consume. And then there's binge eating, overeating. Those are the three most common. There's others like pico, which is where you eat clay or dirt, those kinds of things, but I'm not going to get into those. Those are not my area. I was a combination. I was what they would call bolexic, which I was never a binge eater. Um, I was a starver. And when I would eat even the smallest amounts, I would have to purge. So I think a lot of us We might start with one preference and we all have kind of like our preferred methods, but I think we all at some point end up being a combination. I think that's very common. Right. I mean, that makes sense a lot. I know a lot of the time with specific individuals who do have eating disorders, there are these things that are known as triggers, right? So I'm not a registered dietitian or a psychologist, but I know sometimes these triggers have to kind of, they intertwine around with like PTSD. So what does this mean for eating disorders? Is that the same thing or what types of triggers? They're related. They're related. So a trigger is really any kind of stimulus that causes an emotional reaction in a person. And 
I'll talk about PTSD because I also do have complex PTSD. And just to kind of let you guys know, I'm very open. I've been in very, very intense therapy for most of the last, I would say, 10 years. Um, And I've just grown this level of comfort with all of this information. And I had a lot of triggers. And for me, it could be something as like a song that would come on the radio or something that I would see. And a trigger is related to a trauma or some very traumatizing event. And they call it a trigger because it literally elicits some type of knee-jerk response or an adrenaline response or some type of negative association. Um, Did that answer that question? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay. (laughs) And PTSD is different. It's more like um, something not everybody that has triggers has PTSD. PTSD is a result of overexposed traumas. Tell us why some of these people experience these types of being, where do they come from, right? Like there, there are some traumatic events that people specifically have been through that may cause them and other people, maybe not, but what are some things that, you know, along the way their experiences have caused them to develop any of these types of eating disorders? Okay. For me, and like I said, I can only speak from my perspective. Right. My eating disorders, I think all eating disorders stem from some type of trauma that you experienced where you lost control in your life. People think that eating disorders is really about controlling food. It really isn't. It's usually occurs when people feel so out of control in every other facet of their life. And food is the one thing that we as individuals can control. We can control what we eat or don't eat. And for me, that was very much the case. I grew up in a very, very high pressure family. We were all, you know, my parents and my entire family was very successful, very educated. And when I was eight, I was molested by a family member. And that was the initial traumatizing event. And for me, I started gaining a tremendous amount of weight after that happened. What I didn't understand because I was only eight at the time was sometimes we have a subconscious response to certain traumas. And as a way to protect myself, I was subconsciously eating to soothe myself, but also to gain weight to protect my insides is what I've learned to understand. And to this day, I still have weight that I can't get off because it was gained during that period of time. And They say all the doctors that I've worked with have said that's the hardest, most difficult fat and you may never lose it. But for me, I didn't get the support that I necessarily needed. And a lot of my my pain was swept under the rug. And I just kind of it's that mentality of, oh, just shake it off, move on. It'll be fine. Because when you're dealing with family dynamics, which is so complicated in the best of circumstances, things happen to us that. Maybe our parents don't really understand or the time period didn't allow comprehension of that. And then we're forced to deal with these traumas and try to figure out how to make it work. And definitely me as an eight-year-old, I didn't have the tools or ability to kind of put my head around that and reframe it. So my eating disorders really started, I would say, when I was from the time I was eight to the time I was 13, I gained probably 60 pounds. And my parents, as well intended as they were, were following doctor's orders and they had me. I was I think I was the youngest person ever to be in Weight Watchers. I think I was nine years old. And I remember being in the fourth grade and it was somebody's birthday and they had brought these cupcakes and the teacher was going around and handing all the students out a cupcake. And when she got to me, I got a box of raisins. And I was very, you know, when you're when you're that age, you don't want to be singled out. 
And I remember her saying to me, oh, your mother said you can't have sweets. You're on a diet. And then the kids started pointing and laughing at me. And that was a turning point moment for me. And that's when I started after that to control my own environment because I never wanted to be put into that embarrassment again. So that for me was that pivotal moment. But I think all of us that suffer eating disorders have one of these types of stories. They do know that there is some type of genetic component to it, but that it is almost 100% of the time activated by a traumatic event. Right. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think there's obviously a huge psych, you know, psychological component of this. And we know a lot of psychological-based disorders have been rooted in people's genetics. But as you mentioned, there is a, an event in someone's life that, you know, as the same with autoimmune disorder, someone goes through some traumatizing event. And then they start experiencing the symptoms and the gene gets activated for some of those particular symptoms that people experience. And th- thank you for sharing all that. I think that it brings to light a lot of different things that you basically highlight um, the She Too movement and some other things about the difficulties around complications and being able to express oneself as a young female. And this, unfortunately for you, caused years upon years of, you know, having to work with uh, several combined eating disorders. And I know that, you know, there's a huge emotional side of this for people. And like for me, for example, I'm fortunate enough to have a healthy relationship with food. I would say, Justina, you're similar in that regard. Like we use food as fuel. A lot of our athletes think of food as fuel. And someone like myself really start to understand the emotions around what's going on inside of your brain and to develop these eating disorders in general? Such a great question. And somebody that goes through this, and I'm going to do my best to describe it, we end up developing such a love-hate relationship with the eating disorder. But people need to understand one thing. We don't develop eating disorders to lose weight. Obviously, in many cases, that's the catalyst. Mm -hmm. But that's not really what it's about. Food for us is a way for us to have security and safety. It's the way that we control our environment. And we also, in this society, for me, I felt like I was never seen, ever. When I started, and I'll say practicing my eating disorders, and and I started to really show signs of it, The amount of attention that I got for it was a euphoria unlike I've never felt before. It was the first time I felt important. That's an important thing to note because when you're working with somebody with eating disorders, it's really important for the person that's supporting them not to glamorize or not to go on and on about how great the person looks because that is going to feed that. We are looking, we're basically scared people. We're looking for any type of structure and security around us and things that we can control. And when you get positive feedback for a negative behavior, that's kind of where the firestorm starts. And it winds up weaving a blanket for us where we so don't want to let go of the behavior because then we're going to let go of the attention. That's what makes us special. That's the one piece that I always try to explain to my parents You know, I would hear all the time, like, why are you doing this to us? Why are you starving yourself? Just eat, just eat. And I used to think to myself, well, if it were that easy, why would I be in this place? And I could never 
expressed to them that it wasn't about the eating. It was about if I eat, I'm going to relinquish control and then I'm not going to be able to feel safe in my world. That's the best analogy I can give you. I'm really glad you brought up, because at least for me, like before I started working with you and understanding a little bit more about this, I just thought that males and females that had eating disorders just were teased for being overweight. And that's why they decided to either purge or develop any of the other three that you mentioned. And it's actually not that simple at all, right? There's a lot more complications involved in this. It's not, oh, this person just wants to be at a lower body weight because they're getting made fun of. It's not that simple. And also, I want to go back to what you said a little bit earlier in the podcast about being sort of singled out and being put on almost, well, as you as you did mention, a diet at a young age. And I get this from a lot of parents that want to work with some of our coaches at Consistency Breeds Growth. They come up to us and they're like, okay, so I want to put my child on a diet. They're overweight. I'm like, no, we are. Thank you for that. Yeah, by the we're way. just, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not going to do that. Like we can give some general tips about what healthy eating looks like and what they should be doing to fuel their body appropriately and getting them more active outside. And this is something that I'm learning as we just started our nonprofit organization, Foster Fit is, you know, 17%. amazing, by the way. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, there's still so much that I need to learn about this, but like, obviously one component is that 17% of adolescents and teens are obese, right? And the one way through foster fit that we're trying to specifically help foster youth and teens is by putting them in a fitness program at a CrossFit gym, not put them on a diet, right? Like foster fit is not, oh, you know, we're raising money to put foster youth and teens on a diet. No, it's we're raising money to put foster youth and teens in active programs where they can be a part of a nurturing community and have some sort of normalcy, right? So I think that I, I, I do want to piggyback off of that comment that you made earlier. Do you think that being on a diet or being forced to be put on a diet at a young age exacerbated? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one thing that's really important when you're younger, you know, and especially I cannot imagine being a teenager or a kid in this generation with the amount of pressure coming from social media. The thing for me that really did damage for me with the dieting was I learned very early on that there were good foods and bad foods. And I think it was this approach that really caused me to fear food and it became my enemy instead of, I could never see it as fuel. It was fear because when you're programmed at such an early age, you can't have this, you can have that. It's like all of a sudden there's no gray area in between. I didn't learn about moderation. I learned you either touch this or you don't touch that. And kids, young kids, and even even teenagers, when your brains aren't developed enough to be able to understand context, think about how black and white kids think. And then it takes, I'm living proof that it's taken so many decades to unprogram that belief system. And even today, I still have to catch myself if I go to eat something, I'm like, oh, no, I can't have that. No, I have to change the way I I say that. I'm choosing not to have that. That's kind of how I work with my brain because it is so easy to fall back into this is good, that's bad. That's why I don't like diets. Erica, I do have one question for you. Because like obviously eating disorders are so psychological and we all 
are made aware of that and you shed such good light on that. What serious nature comes from having eating disorders on a physiological level? So like if you are comfortable with sharing something that maybe happened with you during this process or... Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked this question. This is something that no one talks about. Um, I have had so many health issues as a result of my eating disorders and mine started... So my eating disorder really, really, really intensified from the age of 13 forward. But when I was 19 is when it progressed. And I don't want to get into the details of what I did because right. I don't like to give ideas to anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I will tell you, that's the other thing with eating disordered patients is that when they're listening to other stories, they're not taking it as a cautionary tale. Right. They're taking notes and going, oh, I can pull this from this and that from that. So I'm very careful about what I say when I talk about it. But I got into, and I'll just, this is the only thing that I did that I'm going to talk about is that I got into severe laxative abuse when I got into college. Um, and I was abusing a very high quantity every single day. I ended up stripping my intestinal lining of the protective mucosa and ended up with pre-cancer in my large intestine before I was 24 years old. And literally my system, my intestines completely shut down. My hair was falling out. Every part of my body ached. I wasn't having any kind of action down there whatsoever. It was shut down, closed for business. Ended up going through 17 doctors. I had gained 40 pounds on rebound. And imagine what that's doing to my head at the same time. Right. And it took 17 doctors until one finally figured it out. But even after that, I didn't, you know, recovery is never linear, right? So it's Mm -hmm. all over the place. And I I had major relapses in between. But even now, I have problems with my teeth. My teeth break. I was flossing the other day and a tooth broke. Because of all the purging and all the stomach acid, I've destroyed my teeth. Most of them are veneered at this point. I, Justin was talking earlier about autoimmune. What's interesting is I developed autoimmune issues from my eating disorder. I have chronic anemia. My veins are not always easy to get blood from. Uh, What other things have I had? I had adrenal fatigue, complete adrenal blowout. I had esophagitis. I had um, gastric motility issues. I had severe gastritis, but I mean, you name it. I had injury after injury, surgery after surgery. And it's still, to this day, I deal with the side effects of an eating disorder. There's such a huge physiological component that people don't address. They think that, oh, once you start eating again, your body goes back to normal. It takes a really long time and a lot of nurturing. Exactly. I find it interesting that really, in let's say you're in college and you're taking a science course and there's a nutrition aspect to it, talking about eating disorders. Even for me, when I was in grad school, taking nutrition education courses, we didn't necessarily go into the physiological aspects of eating disorders. We only went into the psychological. So like, I find it interesting that no one necessarily goes into the physiological until you need to for a patient. What's interesting that you say that is because when, when I was about 21 and I was, I was still living out where I was going to college and I ended up having to be rushed to the emergency room for malnutrition. But what's interesting about my case is I am naturally very muscular and I am Mm -hmm. not a petite frame. I am, you know, I look very athletic. And so I never wasted. And this is important to know because not every eating disorder patient is going to look the same. Mm -hmm. My insides were starving to death. 
But outside, I look like I could still lose about 15 pounds. And so when I went into the hospital, I'll never forget this. I was telling the doctor, you know, I had vomited blood. It was a whole bunch of other things. I had ruptured my esophagus. And I'm telling him what's going on. And he says to me, well, you can't be anorexic. And I said, I remember saying, looking confused and being like, what? He said, there's no way you're anorexic. Your body would reflect that you're anorexic. Something else is going on here. And I remember thinking what a failure I was. Like I had my plan at that moment was not getting the nutrition back in and getting my esophagus healed. It was, oh my God, I got to step up my game. Mm -hmm. And that repeated itself when I went, went into a group therapy session. I remember walking in and there were these two very anorexic looking women sitting there and they were talking about me, you know, when I walked in and I went to sit down and, and one of the girls looked at me and said, oh, Overeaters Anonymous is down the hall. Now imagine I'm in treatment for bulimia anorexia and I have somebody who looks the way I want to look telling me again, I'm a failure at this, this eating disorder and go to Overeaters Anonymous. That is a big problem with professionals that you cannot assume that somebody is or isn't one way or the other by looking at them. Mm -hmm. There's no way to know. And society as a whole needs to change that perspective. I never look like an anorexic, but if you ask my insides, they would tell you I was one of the worst. Mm -hmm. Yeah. These experiences and things are definitely highlighting, you know, I, I think resonating with a lot of people that may or may not have had thoughts about doing this or are actively um, struggling with their body type. They don't even have to be experiencing any symptoms of eating disorders, right? And I think right. when you and I first spoke, and you told me that you were eight years removed, 26 years of eating disorders. Um, since I'm not clinician, I'm not a registered dietitian, I am a nutrition coach. I consulted with a couple of registered dietitians before deciding ultimately that I would that would I would work with you and help you continue to improve your relationship with food and understanding. And I think our biggest mantra, if you will, was fuel, not fear, right? Yep. And I just want to know from you, what were some of the things that you took away from our experience together and working together, nutrition coach and client, that bolstered your ability to continue on the path that you're on now? Well, you are amazing, whether you realized it or not. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. But... <laughs> when, I, <laughs> when I contacted you, um, you know, I was finally in a place where I was really, really tired of having this black and white relationship with food. And, and I had gotten to you through my trainer who has had tremendous success with you. And I remember telling you, and you never, by the way, came across like you didn't have a clue of what you were doing because you handled it perfectly. And you just said, well, we're going to evaluate you based on how you feel. And we're not going to do weigh-ins. We're not going to get focused on numbers. And I remember one of the things that I was very concerned about was I said to you, I don't think I can eat all the food that's required because I knew I couldn't. My problem, if you recall, when I came to you, I had zero appetite. Yep. None. Yep. And I would go all day, sometimes day and a half without having any food. And you said to me, well, we're going to take it day by day and you eat till you're comfortable and then go back to it when you feel comfortable again. That right there, I believe 
was the critical key to my success factor. At that point, I knew I was working with a coach that was paying attention to what I was saying. You were going to work with me and let my body kind of find its way naturally. You never once pushed me and said, no, you have to eat this. You said, try this. And I think that approach gave me the understanding that I really was the one that was in control of this journey. And and you made me feel very safe within those parameters. And the fact that, you know, as soon as I said to you, when you're like, well, we normally weigh in every week, but we're not going to do that here because that's not the focus. I remember you saying this so clear to me. You said the focus for me is not your body composition, but it's how your body takes that food and how it processes it into fuel. That was genius. So you did a fantastic job not even really having the experience of working with somebody with eating disorders, but that really is the secret to the approach. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good change of mindset for most people, right? Not even just people with eating disorders. Obviously, you know, it's great to hear the kind words and working with you and stuff like that. And I think you also did an amazing job of not putting any pressure on yourself to reach some of the expectations. We really just took things day by day. And for me personally, as a coach, and I think Justina, as the second nutrition coach at CBG, we sort of take the same outlook for everyone, right? And it's we meet the client and athlete where they are. And to meet them where they are, we have to understand where they are. And for you, it was more difficult for me to understand where you are, because I've never even been in that position before. Right. It's easier for me to resonate with someone who is a little bit overweight, is thinking about doing CrossFit and time just got away from them. Right. They had kids. Time just got away from them. It's easy for me to resonate with someone like that. But for someone like you, it's not as easy. So we obviously had to do our part in understanding and researching a little bit more and take out from the beginning all the potential triggers that people suffer from, you know, analyzing their, themselves in the mirror, get, stepping on the scale, restricting foods. Like I didn't say, hey, Erica, this is the food list you can't have. This is the food you can't have because these foods are bad. We didn't do any of that. We really gave a flexible approach to you and sort of just guided you through helping you understand really what it means to fuel your body more appropriately than you were prior, you know? Well, and there's something you don't know. I was terrified about doing this. There was this this piece of me that was like, what if I'm not recovered enough? What if this takes me down the road? What if this activates that automatic calculator in my head? I was kind of concerned twofold. One, that I was going to become obsessed with calories and what I was eating and serving portions. And sometimes with eating disorder patients, at the beginning, you want to measure everything. It it helps get an idea, but it can also turn into a compulsion, just like the scale can turn into a compulsion. And that's the only danger with eating disorder people that I would say is that anything, I became a compulsive overexerciser most of my life. I couldn't just measure food for one meal. It became every single thing. And then it became the focus of everything. So there was part of me that was afraid that I was going to go back down that path. But I think it was because you were so open and I felt safe working with you. And I knew that if I'd come to you and said, Justin, I'm getting a little hyper-focused on this. I felt really confident that you would have a way to steer me around that. And... I think for the person doing the program with you, they also have to be willing to trust and give up a little bit. I don't want to say control, 
but put the trust in you that you're directing us in the line that we need to go in. Because this is the first plan that I have had massive success with my body composition changes. And I still don't weigh myself, by the way, just so you know. And I won't because I do know myself well enough to know that that is one of my focal points. And that's one of my pitfalls that I have to be careful of. But now I do it based on how how I'm feeling, how I'm performing at my sports. You know, I've broken my neck three times. Three times they told me that I would probably never walk again. And my trainer, who is also one of your clients, who I've worked with for the last God knows I don't even know how many years. We just kept getting back on that horse and getting stronger and stronger. And this element of the diet, I'm in better shape than I was when I was in my 20s. And not only am I walking, I'm still riding my horses. I'm still playing tennis. And I think a big part of that is the the nutrition aspect. And so now I get it. And you helped connect those dots for me. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, One comment I wanted to make. And I'm seeing a lot of uh, crossover and uh, parallelism to just regular clients in this. So like there are a lot of things coming out now uh, where people are using my fitness pal and they're tracking every gram and uh, these other dieting apps, um, you know, and not to take away from anyone developing these apps or taking away from anyone who follows and tracks these apps, but just understand that, um, you know, you're not going to track in that fucking app forever. You can't do that mm-hmm. to yourself. Um, you're not going to do it. And at the end of the day, if we're looking for a consistent way to improve our performance, our body composition, or just our way of life through food, you're not going to go through an app. So like all these like expert nutrition coaches, which they are experts, like uh, Lane Norton has an app called Carbon out there. He's a, he's a genius. He's an expert, but he must know that this app isn't for everyone. And I think he realizes that. And this is why, you know, CBG, you know, over the past four to five years have, we're, we've totally gotten away from that model. Like we don't have anyone track anything. Like I'm starting to work with a CrossFit Games athlete, uh, Brooke Haas, and she went to the CrossFit Games this year, the online format. And I didn't, before we start, I have all of my higher level athletes and even some, some of the other clients that we work with just Tell me what you eat on a daily basis for a week. Write everything down and send it to me. I don't have them go on my fitness pound track everything. I don't really care so much about what the calories are, what the mac, because there are ways to lose weight without counting calories and macros. Let your coach take care of the calories. Let your coach take care of the macros and then let them give you the portion sizes of food you need to eat to hit some of your goals, whatever they are, whether it's performance, body composition, or both. And that's the approach that we've taken. And it's simplified food for people. It has them eating intrinsically. And it's just good to know that there is, you know, some overlap between people that have struggled and are dealing with their weight, the way that they look, the way that they feel, people with eating disorders, and just everyday ordinary people that are just trying to lose weight. We don't think the apps are the way. We will never No, and to add to your point. Yeah. To add to your point with apps, there's there's something else that needs to be addressed here. When Whenever you're changing your body composition for whatever the motivation is, apps can't track the emotional component, right? They can't tell when people don't understand the amount of impact that stress and stress hormones have on weight loss and overall how your body's functioning. 
And if you're working with an app, it can't give you feedback to say, okay, what are your stress levels? How do we adjust this? What's going on emotionally? Because especially I can't speak for men because I'm not one, but I know with women, we tend to hold on to more emotional weight than maybe our male counterparts. (laughs) That's a really big piece of this. And unless you're working with another human that can be there to support you, an app is never going to help break you through those emotional plateaus that are, that it's most of the time it's us blocking ourselves. But because we don't have a reflective mirror in an app, we can't say, oh, wait a minute, I'm really stressing myself out for no reason. So it's more than just having somebody to kind of guide you and say, this is what you need to eat A, B, and C. It's also having somebody who is not emotionally directly involved with you to act as a reflector to say, okay, well, maybe we're having this problem because of what's going on in your life emotionally right now. Right. And that's a big part of food, eating disorders, weight loss, body composition. It's all a circle. Yeah. I I really, truly think the next wave of nutrition coaching is being able to deal with the emotional side and psychological side of people's people's eating. Like, you know, I had someone that recently contacted us at CBG and I'm working with her now and she's doing wonderful. But before speaking with me, she told me what she had done before. She's like, I did working against gravity. I did calculating macros. I did RP strength. I did M2 performance. All these different, very popular working with several several uh, dieting coaches that are popular in across the world, right? And she says, how are you going to be different? And I kind of just sat back and I'm like, um, you know, for me, like if you are doing diets, losing weight, and then putting the weight back on, there's more of an emotional side to your eating as opposed to, you know, you understand, because you understand how to eat well, and you're still actively choosing on a daily basis to not, you know, fix those underlying issues. So for me, I think personally, the next wave of nutrition coaching is not is going to be not only helping people lose weight, but to keep off the weight and have a better emotional and uh, psychological relationship with food so that they don't have to continue to hire coaches that do the same thing. Well, 100%. Because I mean, for me, my eating disorders were 100% driven by emotion. Right. 100%. And I think most of us are. I I mean, I don't want to give a specific statistic, but I I think, yes, there is a genetic component. But I think they're 100% emotionally driven. And I know Mm -hmm. the amount of therapy I've gone through to get to the place that I'm at now. And to not have support while I'm going through the food part of this journey, I would not have been successful. I would have kept doing the same things that I'd done before, because if I could have done it on my own, it would have happened on my own. But instead I went the total opposite direction and I went into destruction, not thrive direction, you know? So what if like someone comes to you that confides in you that they also have an eating disorder based off of your own experiences? What do you think would be the best recommendation for them to do? Because like you're saying, from working with Justin and CBG, you've learned that as long as it took you, but you did learn that like we, you finally have to use food as fuel and regardless of how long it takes you to get there, it's going to work. So what recommendations do you have potentially for someone who may confide in you? Just to, just to point out something, it is not to work with us. 
Yeah, it is. No, no, no. It is yeah, 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 absolutely not. Enough. Sorry. No, I know you didn't say it. Just you know, I just wanted to make sure that people. Just understand. if you're a family yeah. member of some a friend or yeah, you know, I have this. I get this yeah. a lot. I get a lot of people coming to me, and from in my experience, it's all about the person's readiness. How willing are they to really own the behavior? Because mo- in most cases, people that suffer from eating disorders either don't want to admit that they're in the spot that they're in, or they're not ready to. Again, it's like I said earlier, we develop such a codependent relationship with our illness. And it's literally when you go through the healing process, it's a death, you mourn a death. And I remember I went Mm -hmm. through this one period where I was craving my disease, because I felt like I had something, I always had goals in my head with my disease, I always felt like I was working towards something. So for me, the first thing I do is I try to find out where they are on the spectrum of readiness. And if they're more about, well, yeah, you know, I do this once in a while, but it's not that big of a deal. I know there's not much I'm going to be able to do. And you can't force somebody to make these changes until they're really at that place. And unfortunately, it usually takes some big, big event where the person just is so exhausted. They just say, I can't do this anymore. If you're a person that's supporting somebody with eating disorders, you have to be very patient and you have to understand that they're not trying to do any of this behavior to inconvenience you or to punish you or to to even punish themselves. They're not that self-aware. The first thing I would do is encourage them to get into some type of therapy. Now, this is another area that I feel very passionate about because we say that word a lot, but what does that mean? There's so many different types of therapies. And when somebody calls a therapist, they're like, they don't know what kind of therapy they practice. And even if they were told, they would have no context for it. So it's really important for somebody who is going to explore therapy to educate themselves a little bit on the different types of therapy. I did talk therapy for many, many years. And for some people, that's enough. And that's great. For me, it wasn't enough. And I also think it has to do with what is the root of the eating disorder and how severe How many traumas are on top of it? Is it one event and this is acute eating disorder behavior or somebody like me who's 26 years in and it's more chronic and that's a little bit more challenging to try to tackle? What I ultimately ended up doing was I went into a type of therapy, which is called EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And it's a, you meet one-on-one with a therapist and they use different modalities. But in my case, it was these two little um, lollipop paddles that you hold in your hands and they just, they're like massage paddles. And the left hand is vibrating at one pattern. The right hand vibrates at the other pattern. And the left hand triggers the right hemisphere of the brain and the right hand triggers the left hemisphere of the brain. And the therapist will take you through a series of events in your life and get you to a place where you're in the event And then they'll start the vibration with the paddles and talk you through. And so they'll ask you on a scale of one to 10, what, how bad does this feel? And usually it's like a 10. And then as the reprocessing starts, that goes down and down and down until it doesn't bother you at all. What this does is it creates new neural pathways in the brain where you will, it's not like a mind eraser. You always know the trauma is there, but the new neural pathways allow the trauma to be viewed instead of experienced. And that's what opened things up for me. And that's what detached me from my eating disorder. And I was no longer my eating disorder. That was something that I experienced, but it wasn't who I was. Because the other important thing to note is most of us that have eating disorders, and I still say I do because I'm going to have it till the day that I die. I'm never going to lose respect for my disease enough to say that I'm cured. I'm not. 
But my eating disorder was my identity. It was who I was. And everybody in my world knew that I suffered from this. And it was almost something like I wore very proudly because I was strong enough to not eat. I was, I had so much willpower. You know, I remember judging people who would eat fried foods because I'd be like, oh my God, I would never do that. And yet I was angry that I was getting judged. So you see how this works. It's like until I had the experience of EMDR where I could really separate from the emotion that I attached to the, to the eating disorder that then I could separate and realize, okay, I'm really killing myself and this is not helping. This is making it much worse. And I did reach a point in my disease where I was tired and I didn't want to do it anymore. I hated every time that, you know, you're out in a restaurant or you go out to dinner with somebody and then you have to go to the bathroom, the judgment and the, all of the questions that happen after that. I was just tired of it. I didn't want to be controlled by it anymore. So I was very ready to do it. Yeah. I know that's a long-winded answer, but it's a very complex question to say, you know, where do we go from here? You're just going to have to do your best. Be very open and listen without judgment. And the love of everything sacred, please do not tell them just to eat. Yeah. It's it's not helpful and it and it makes us feel even worse. Yeah. And just ask the person what you can do to support them best. Absolutely. I think we're gonna we're gonna leave it there. This was um this was such a great and insightful podcast and who better to have than you to talk about this Erica we want to appreciate you sharing all of your stories with us and I think whether you're struggling with this or not I think you're going to gain a lot a lot of or have gained a lot of value from listening to this podcast and the mentality around eating the emotional side of eating and having more sympathy for those that may be struggling with their weight and especially at a time right now during COVID-19 when when people are like, oh, you know, these people don't have any personal responsibility. I'm not going to wear a mask. But you don't know the relationship with these, uh, you know, the, these people have with food. And of course, everybody needs a degree of personal responsibility. But at the end of the day, you don't know what anyone else is going through. And I hope this highlights some of the trauma and some of the difficulties around people that are struggling with their, you know, their weight, their choices around food and exercise. So, you know, if you're one of those people, maybe this podcast isn't for you. I don't really give a shit. But, you know, yeah, that, that's just my take on it. I, I don't really care. They, these, there are a lot of people struggling out there. And it's our, it's our job as nutrition coaches, CrossFit coaches, and others to, you know, help them. I've just seen too many CrossFit coaches that are like, oh, you know, I'm not wearing a mask for you because you're, you know, you don't have any personal yeah. responsibility or you're – you're a fad and overweight. It's like, but you're a coach. Like, aren't you supposed to be? This is why you're a fucking coach. You lead by example. Yeah. You do. Exactly. exactly. So, you're, you know. Yeah. It's a, it's. And you've done such a great job with me. And I wanted to take a minute to just thank you for supporting me through this part of my journey. Because I feel like for the first time in my life, I feel like I have such a solid, healthy relationship with food. And for the first time ever, I don't fear it. I feel like, okay, I know what I need to do. I'm comfortable with it. I don't have to have safe foods, scary foods. So anybody that is out there that's contemplating thinking about this, if you go in with an open mind and you do it for yourself and for the nourishment, I really strongly encourage you to work with, with Justin and Justina because they really do get it. They, re- You guys really do get it. Yeah, thank you. So thank you for Th- thank supporting you, me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You. We're uh, we're passionate about this. I hope that that comes through 
on these podcasts with you guys. And, you know, at the end of the day, the big message here for everyone, whether you're struggling with any type of eating disorder or not, is it's fuel, not fear. All right. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, CBG Radio is out. See you next week.